Welcome to Football and Society, a new podcast exploring societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. In this series, we'll be covering topics including the history of the China-Hong Kong footballing rivalry, the effects of gambling sponsorship on young fans, and the historical links between Celtic and Scotland's Irish diaspora. And this week, we're looking at the experiences of Muslim players in Europe. In 1992, there was just one Muslim player in the English Premier League. 20 years later, there were 40, and Muslim players like Mohamed Salah are now counted among the superstars of Europe's most lucrative domestic league. Muslims' participation is not without complication, however. Professor Yuri Shabit studied the experiences of Muslim players in Europe and published his findings in the Soccer and Society Journal in 2019. Muslims' participation in football both as players and as spectators, is complicated by fatwas within Islamic jurisdiction. These are formal rulings or interpretations on a point of Islamic law given by a qualified legal scholar, and they were the subject of qualitative analysis for this study. Certain fatwas rule that Muslims should not compete in sports for money, should not break fasting in order to take part, and should not shower in communal areas with certain areas of the body exposed, all of which is problematic for Muslims wishing to participate. While certain exemptions have been made for professionals, most players in amateur leagues are expected to abide by the fatwas. This has led to the creation of Islamic clubs in countries including Germany, where special measures are taken to ensure players can practice the sport and their faith without transgressing. Even in the world of professional football, several incidents recently have illustrated that difficulties remain for Muslim players. Ultimately, however, Football is effectively influencing Islamic norms by encouraging new contextualization of prophetic traditions to legitimize playing and watching the game. Professor Yuri Shavit works in the Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies at Tel Aviv University in Israel. We're delighted to welcome him onto the podcast today. Yuri, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Can we ask to begin with, why did you originally want to conduct this research? Well, I thought it would be fun which it was. But I think generally sports are a very, very good way to uh, study issues like uh, integration, migration, conflicts between religious norms and secular norms. And specifically, what I always found very interesting, and I hope that my study was able to demonstrate that, was that people have a tendency to think of Sharia or of rabbinical law as things which are very static, very dogmatic, and to think about football laws, FIFA laws, as, as something that's very uh, flexible, human-made, commercial. And in fact, Sharia laws are much more flexible than football laws. Those that usually accommodate are Sharia law. When the two conflict, it's Sharia laws that can be reinterpreted and, and applied in different ways. I think that's, for most people, that would sound very awkward, but that's the reality of the practice of an, an application of Islamic law in the West and at large. The next World Cup is going to be the first one held in a Muslim-majority country, Qatar, of course. Do you have a sense of whether this is likely to change critical perceptions of the game within some sections of Islam and of Muslims' involvement in it among non-Muslims? I mean, first, a good question is whether it would ultimately be held in Qatar, because I think the, the idea and everything around it is so outrageous. I mean, if, if it is going to end up being held there, I think it will do nothing but show, A, that the world of football today is very hypocritical and that some Muslim leaderships are very hypocritical because it makes no sense from a footballing point of view to, to hold it in Qatar. 
And it makes no sense that a country without any football tradition and very few uh, adequate players and very little population that can act as audience, as crowds, uh, would spend dozens of billions of dollars involving the uh, untimely death of thousands of labor migrants in order for what? For us to say that the World Cup was held in Qatar in the year uh, 2022. I mean, that's that's this is so absurd. <laughs> this shows you so many bad things about the way global football leadership is handling itself. And about the hypocrisy of uh, Gulf monarchies and the total disregard for public money and for uh, public safety. Because I also know that Israel has no chance whatsoever to make it to the World Cup. So it's very easy to sort of disregard. Well, we'll see about England's chances as well, I guess. But could it not be argued that, to Ash's point in the intro, that having the World Cup in Qatar could be an opportunity to influence norms within the country and within the wider Muslim world? Yeah, because the thing is, football has been played in Muslim countries now for over a century. And those fatwas that you've mentioned, they are not reality. They are an idea, an effort. They are endeavors trying to affect reality, trying sort of to have football played in accordance with Islamic norms. So it's not that something needs to be changed in, in that regard. I mean, people have been playing football in Qatar just as they have been playing football in, in Egypt. I've just realised there as well um, that obviously Israel's last result was a, a one-all draw against Scotland and Ryan Fraser of Newcastle scored against Israel. So apologies for that. Um, anyhow, um, one of the first times I ever thought about how Ramadan might impact on a professional player was when a hero of mine, Kevin Keegan, mentioned when managing Man City in 2003 how he believed Christian Negwai was forced to drink water and break his fast to take a drugs test. You talk of contrasting interpretations of the permissibility of football as breaking the fast during Ramadan and how it can be justified on the concept of um, mashlaha. Can you expand on this for listeners, please? Yeah, this is a very delicate and complicated issue. So first, Ramadan. As you know, uh, if you are a Muslim, then you are supposed to fast for a month from dawn to sunset. And the thing is, if you live, in, a, in for example, in Scotland, or uh, God forbid in Iceland, from dawn to uh, sunset, that could mean 22 hours. So that's a very long fast. Now, if you are a practicing Muslim and, and also you happen to be a professional football player and you are required to fast and play, obviously there is a risk involved. And I have to say, I read three uh, different medical studies that suggested that it is possible physically to fast for a long period during the day and then play without harm. But I have to say, I wasn't very much convinced reading those studies because they were not done on people playing professional football, sort of a 90-minute effort. So I, I don't know if, if they, they reflect the, the risk that actually exists. And there is also the thing that we know, if you're a professional football player, then you are signed to a contract that says that you have to do your very best whenever you play. I think when you sign players on these contracts, uh, what managements have in mind is nightclubs, not sort of fasting. But nevertheless, the clauses are there. You need to do everything you can to come out there with your very best performance. So you had cases where management's coaches told players, you need to drink and eat before you, you, you go on the pitch. And then there comes, uh, I think, the most uh, flexible and accommodating uh, element of Sharia law, which, which is the following concept. I'll try to explain it as, as briefly as possible. There is the idea on which all Sunni Muslims agree that the laws God 
has given us, those laws that comprise the, the Sharia, they were given to safeguard primary objectives. Those primary objectives are known as the Makassid. Sometimes it happens that the performance of specific prohibition would lead to an injury under given circumstances to one of the primary objectives. And in those cases, it may be determined that the prohibition may be suspended just on that given case. Now, let's assume we have a situation where a professional football player is told that if he does insist on fasting, then he would be sacked. He'd become unemployed. One of the five primary objectives is mal, is that you have money that you can provide for your family. So some muftis determined that in that case, it would be legitimate for the professional football player to defer the fast so as to avoid being sacked and losing his job. But there is a big debate in Islamic law in, among uh, uh, experts on Sharia as to what are precisely the terms and the circumstances that allow the application of that mechanism. And obviously, as you can imagine, there are many of them who say that playing professional football is not one of them because let's say that player is sacked, then he always has the option to find another job. Maybe not as rewarding, but one that would not involve him engaging in haram, in unlawful acts. But you have very prominent panels and muftis who, who argued otherwise. They argue that if your profession is playing football and fasting may cost you your job, then it is legitimate to defer the fast. And this is, in fact, I think one of the best examples I can think of, of really how Sharia law is, is more adjusting than FIFA laws, because why not defer the game? Why not defer the match? I mean, it's just football. If you have so many Muslim football players today in the Premier League and other leagues, I mean, why not be considerate and just hold all those games in, in, in ways that do not contradict people's beliefs? I have to say just one more thing. You know, this is all very academic, but people who grew up as Muslims, some of them are just mentally incapable of eating or drinking when there is sun in the sky and it's Ramadan. So no matter what this mufti says and what that mufti said, they would just maintain the fast. And I did hear from some of them that faith makes it possible for them to fast and play well. I, I can just tell you a funny story from England that I was on a train back from Birmingham to London, and I had a lot of fatwa compilations with me. So in front of me on the train sat a Pakistani cricket player. You can tell a cricket player by the way they're dressed. And he, he saw that I have fatwa compilations, so he, he found it interesting, and we started talking. And he told me that he plays for... Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know much about cricket, I have to confess, so forgive me if I'm saying something uh, that's, that's not correct. But he was playing for one of those teams in, in England, and apparently, contrary to what people like me think, it is a game uh, where you actually move on, on some occasions. And I asked him how he manages. And he said that faith keeps him going. He's able to play for, it's a very long game, isn't it? Yeah, it's about like eight hour. hours compared to yeah, 90 and, minutes. It's huge. Yeah. And, and because he has faith in his heart, it's just possible for him to, mm -hmm. to go on for those eight hours. People are actually sitting there watching this for eight hours. I mean, that's yeah. There's a lot of drink involved as well, wow. as you can imagine. Yeah. That, that is impressive. <laughs> that is that is impressive, regardless of the uh, and five days all together as well. So I mean, it's wow. we're talking about forty yeah. hours overall. Yeah. <laughs> so he managed, and I met a lot of people who who manage because faith mm. faith is something that does apparently uh, make some things which otherwise would be impossible possible. 
because of, I guess, Islamic position on, on idolatry. Has there been any discussion among scholars of Islam around Muslim football has been idolised by fans and how this impacts on certain yes. scholars' conceptions of the yeah, permissibility of their play in the game? That's actually one of the main arguments against uh, not just football, but football culture. There was a huge debate in Saudi Arabia in 1994, if you remember, that was quite a good year for Saudi football. And there was a lot of involvement of the uh, Saudi uh, king and the royal family and the national squad. Um, and th there was a sense by some religious scholars that this, this is going too far, that young people are obsessed with football, that they've been distracted from their religious duties. So um, that's one of the main concerns. And even muftis who uh, allow watching football and playing football always caution young people that they can play and watch only to the extent that that doesn't distract them from their religious duties. You know, something that also concerns them a lot is there is this sense of fanaticism that people get so involved that they would not see that the person they're playing against as a fellow Muslim brother, but rather as a rival, as an enemy. So there is always this, in, in fatwas, there is always this sense and sentiment of don't overdo it. I mean, don't exaggerate. It's just a game. Your article focuses primarily on male players. What are your thoughts on the future of women's football in the Muslim world? Clearly, there are a wide range of views, both religious and cultural, on the acceptability of this. Yeah, I mean, I haven't studied that issue. I, I know there are the places, including in Israel, where you still see the beginning of women's football. But women's football uh, introduces a, a whole new set of issues and concerns from a Sharia point of view. So... That's like a whole additional universe of things to discuss, including first and foremost, whether as a mufti, uh, you think it's appropriate for a woman to leave the house and engage in sports that people other than her husband can observe. That that's to start with, that's anything but obvious. So at Newcastle, striker Papi Sisse expressed his discomfort wearing the shirt when it had a gambling company sponsor. Freddie Canutier was permitted to wear a shirt without the sponsor displayed at Sevilla when the sponsor was a gambling company. You mentioned both these players in your article. Is this issue something you feel causes discomfort with Muslim players in the big European leagues where gambling sponsorship is ubiquitous? And actually, also at the amateur level, I guess, because obviously gambling kind of pervades all levels of football now. And I imagine that even in the amateur leagues, when players are playing against opposition teams, gambling is, is very much present there is a thing to know about the instructions of Sharia. It's not just that it's unlawful to do something that's prohibited. It's also unlawful to help someone else do it. So if I'm a Muslim, and I guess uh, you guys are not, and I don't drink alcohol, still it is my duty not to serve you alcohol. And obviously, if I'm a football player and I advertise alcohol, gambling, banks that are not Islamic banks, then obviously I am assisting evil because I'm helping others sort of be familiarized with the existence of those unlawful firms and businesses. But you see, again, the, the funny thing I saw is that in most cases, when you had a player who, who said, I don't want to wear that uh, jersey, and, and you had the management that said you have to, in the end, it was the player that gave in. Uh, so in the end, again, sort of the laws of business and the laws of capitalism were stronger than Sharia law, and it was this mechanism of maslaha that made it possible to legitimize uh, engagement in the uh, prohibited act. But I think if you can find it on Google, I think, you remember that photo of the uh, Bayern München players, all of them holding uh, a cup of beer, very big sort of glasses of beer, as, as is usually the case in Bavaria. And Frank Ribéry was not. 
you are allowed those small protests, but you can never really beat the system, can you, as a player? I mean, the, the problem with all of this is that we really have here different rights that people have in liberal systems, and they collide. If I was a management football team, and I had such a player, my concern would not be with that one player sort of being made an exception. My concern would be that the next day, a vegetarian player would come with his concerns and then a feminist with his. And this would never end because once you allow those concerns to have presence in the team, then, I mean, you can no longer advertise anything in today's world. So I guess that's why management were so firm about players having to do as they're told. It's interesting that you mentioned, obviously, the aspect of facilitating these um, haram actions. So, for example, as you mentioned, someone who is a practicing Muslim ought not to serve alcohol to someone who maybe isn't um, a Muslim. And it got me thinking of players themselves. Now, regardless of whether or not there's gambling sponsorship on the shirt or in the stadium, the reality is that there are fans in that stadium who are going to be gambling on the outcome of the match and therefore by merely participating in that match, could it be argued that they could be facilitating the gambling companies just simply by playing football? True. But Sharia does draw distinctions between direct and indirect uh, contribution. And the indirect contribution or engagement also has different levels. So, I mean, you are not responsible for someone sitting in a stadium and gambling. But if you advertise on your very own shirt, a gambling company, then that's your doing. So that's a different thing, I think. And, and yeah, in the end, I mean, there is no way around it. If you live in today's world, then you will indirectly, you will indirectly participate or contribute to many things that are haram. There is no way around it. Also, if you live in a Muslim country, I mean, there is just no way around it. One of the interesting things for me around the whole Papi Sisse debacle was apparently, you know, the, one of the reasons why he gave in in the end was that there was a photograph which was circulated quite widely in the British press of him in a casino. So that element or the perception of hypocrisy. And it just made me wonder whether it's something that we see quite a lot in the, the British media, but I think you know, maybe it extends to the wider European media. The expectations in regards to kind of hypocrisy, that the bar for purity of thought and action does seem somewhat higher in the case of Muslim players, as opposed to players that aren't Muslim. And I just think it's quite an interesting. Um, yeah. not Although, let's be but... honest, I mean, if you make sort of a point that you are so devout that you would do something, uh, I mean, this would be the equivalent of taking a photo of someone who would not advertise meat, you know, sitting in McDonald's. So if you make an ideological point, it comes at a certain price. You need to sort of lead your life in a certain way. So I didn't find that that was the one case of tabloid media being so uh, sort of uh, intrusive. And, and so I thought that was actually a very good, uh, that was actually a very good report. It's funny you mention footballers being caught eating meat because there's a vegan football club, Forest Green Rovers in the UK, really? who after a famous cup victory... They were all caught eating meat products from a bakery, from a Greg's outside, well, in the town, I think. So, yeah. May I ask just because I'm curious, what is it that sort of brings vegans together as a football team? I mean, what is the... I'm not sure. I think... I, I'll tell you, I'm a vegan. I'm a vegan. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm a vegan. Um, You've got links as well, haven't you? To Forest I have, Green. yeah. <laughs> so, Forest Green Rovers, the owner is a man called Dale Vince, and he is the owner of a, a sustainable... Power company, so um, electric and gas. I've 
got my gas and electricity with them, of course. Um, 100% sustainable. This this man is he's a very modern, I mean, I would call him an eco-warrior. He's a highly intelligent, intellectual man. And he, that whole football club, he created it more or less from scratch, from the ground up. The stadium is, is sustainably built. Uh, all the food inside is vegan. So he's just a very passionate and very mental advocate. And he's done incredibly well with the football team. Um, and on many levels, I would love to support them, um, for them to be my club, but I can't because Newcastle United's in my blood, unfortunately. But yeah, I think a lot of what he does is absolutely incredible. And the fans themselves, it's not like they're exclusively vegan. It's, you know, anyone goes. And I think what he does is by having those fans in there, it's kind of him getting his message across. So, well, I had a dissertation proposal accepted on exploring vegan identities within football fans. And one of the ideas was to, speak with Forest Green fans to find out who would actually become vegan merely by attending the football matches. Unfortunately, COVID has impacted on that. So it won't be happening this year. However, maybe one day. But yeah, Are they a good team? I mean, but I mean, look, mm. good in the sense that they've come from nowhere and they're actually a professional side in the league now. They've gone up the divisions really quickly and they're, they're pushing for promotion to League One, which is the third division, right? So they've done incredibly well in a short space of time. However, the reality is they are based in Gloucestershire, which is very much a, a county where football isn't necessarily going to be the prime game. So the catchment area for fans is, is relatively small. Um, so if they get to League One, that's a huge achievement, really is. All power to them. All power to them, eh? <laughs> Interesting. Given the importance of um, Dahua in Islam, uh, has there, as far as you know, been discussion on the potential of football as a means through which Muslim players can invite others to the faith as opposed to it being something that ought not to be played because of arguments around its permissibility. This is also something I've studied quite a bit, sort of conversion narratives and, and dawah that's intended to bring people to Islam. And I never thought of that, but now that you ask, you've got me thinking that actually I've never seen a narrative or a story uh, saying, you look, Frank Ribéry is Muslim, so why don't you think about it? Of course, you know who's the most famous athlete that was has been the biggest trophy for Islam. That's Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. Ali. Yeah. Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali is a challenge for two reasons. A, because the Islamic sect he belonged to, I mean, is questionable whether it's orthodox Islam, whether it can and should be regarded as Islam at all. And the second thing is that boxing is actually considered by all muftis, whose fatwas I've read, unlawful. Because your purpose is to knock someone down, you risk uh, injuring um, one of the five primary objectives of the lawgiver. And yet, Muhammad Ali is such a big trophy that someone who is who's such a big name uh, chose Islam. He wasn't born a Muslim. He chose Islam. That you will find his name mentioned in, in sort of stories about how I came to Islam, why you should give Islam some thought. But I've never seen, at least I've never seen, names of football players mentioned in those kind of books and storytelling. In other podcasts previously, we've talked about how football is a particularly accessible sport, um, that you require very little funds to actually play football. In fact, it's often free in a neighbourhood. I was wondering whether in the Middle East, football is a game of the masses and if that's why there is particular concern about it distracting from the faith. Uh, precisely, I mean, because football is the game of the masses. I have to tell you something. I'm very skeptical about this notion of, of football as a means for mobilization. I know you've dealt with it quite a bit. I don't think it is. I think, and at the risk of sounding a neo-Marxist, I, I will say that nevertheless, I think it's a way for elites to give the masses the illusion that they have a chance to mobilize. But it, it's never really anything 
anything uh, other than that. Because in the end, how many people get to be professional football players? Of those masters that play as, as children, how many of them do? And what you have instead is dozens of thousands of kids in every society that waste their most important years on thinking that they would be able to fulfill a dream that most likely they would not. So if you really wanted those masses to mobilize, you would teach them uh, computer uh, engineering or engineering in general. And that's not always the case. So I'll give you an example from Israeli society. In the 80s, there were only two Arab Israeli players in the Israeli, uh, hesitate to use the word Premier League, but in the first division in Israel, there were only two Arab Israeli players. Today, I think it's 25%. And one third of the national squad are Arab Israelis. But I don't see it as a sign of mobilization. I would see uh, mobilization in Arab Israelis uh, if you have 15, 20% of medical staff being Arab Israeli, which is also the case. So that is real mobilization. But football players, I, I just don't see how that sort of helps redistribute wealth or or change the fortunes of the, of the less fortunate, just because so very few people would actually end up being a professional football player. And what about supporters? Because one of the most powerful moments I can recall in football fandom was after the Port Said massacre at the stadium in Egypt, if you remember. And I remember the fans awaiting the train that carried the bodies of the dead spectators. And that was a really powerful moment. And in, at that moment, they were chanting Allah is great and there was that kind of collective passion and that resolve so is it different perhaps within the supporters ranks do you think mm, now I hate to sort of downplay the whole thing again but I think there is a tendency in recent years to exaggerate in this regard as well you remember 1998 when France won the World Cup and there was this talk about the new France Mm. which is sort of everyone is integrated and everyone plays for the, for the team uh, and it, doesn't, it makes no difference if you are of Algerian extraction or whether you are born French. It lasted for some time until in 2010 they had a horrible team. And then you had again this discourse of are they loyal, are they really French? So I once said, what's the difference between a French Muslim player and an and, and Algerian Muslim French player missing the penalty kick. There is integration as long as you deliver. And, and when that's sort of, when these are the terms for integration, it's not really integration, is it? No, and interestingly enough, before Chris asks, I think, the final question, we did a podcast uh, on that very subject, the 1988 uh, French World Cup, with an academic called Lindsay Krasnoff. Um, and I recommend, uh, I recommend you listen to it if you ever get half an hour. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And just quickly, was uh, Walid Badia one of the first Israeli Arab players to play in the top flight? No, it was uh, someone by the name of Rifa Turk from Jaffa. Right. Who was a very good player. He had that one uh, marvellous uh, kick from like 50, 60 metres that is still legendary in Israeli football. But he, he sort of shined because he was the only one. Then there was a striker for Maccabi Haifa, Zay Armeli. And they were pretty much the only ones. And that's really amazing when you think that today the Israeli first division is, is around one third era. Yeah, absolutely. The final question here, and you talked a couple of minutes ago about the conversion narratives. This is related to that. But a link has been made with the involvement of Muslim players in the game and reduced hate crime uh, and positive sentiment towards Islam as well. Uh, and interestingly, uh, according to some local statistics, Islamophobic hate crimes in Liverpool 
reduced by 18% after most Salah signed. Whether or not that's a direct uh, connection, uh, we'll leave that open. But the, that, that was touted quite a lot in, in the press a couple of years ago. Um, what, are the, what is the perception of those apparently positive steps regarding integration within the Muslim community? So I understand that it's positively viewed in Egypt, for example, but might that be for nationalist rather than solely religious reasons? That's something we always have to remember. That um, I mean, we we discuss uh, we discuss those Muslim football players as if Islam is the only thing that defines them. But there is ethnicity, um, and and there are other aspects of your identity which are equally important. One of the things I, I noticed in my studies is that the lines between those categories uh, categories are not that easily distinguishable. Uh, when someone does something says something, acts in a certain way or doesn't act in a certain way, it's not always very easy to distinguish um, between the ethnic, traditional, folklorist uh, reasons that he's doing so and, and religion as such, uh, because those tend to, to get mixed. And one of the things I saw, for example, in, in Muslim football teams in Europe, because, you know, you have now in England and in Germany and elsewhere, you have Muslim football teams, sort of. The thing that unites, like you had the, you mentioned that uh, vegan team. So you had te- you have teams where, what brings people together is that they're Muslim. But when you when you approach those teams, you see that it's 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 not really just about Islam, or it's not just about abiding by Sharia law. It also has to do with them being of a certain ethnicity and of them being migrants who feel more comfortable being with other migrants from certain backgrounds. And where exactly do you draw the line? between me being uncomfortable doing something as a matter of tradition and me being uncomfortable doing something as, as a matter of, 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 of Sharia, of, of religious code. Not always easy to distinguish. Not always even possible to distinguish because it's, it's mixed in their own perception of it. Can I... We've come to the end of the questions that we've written. Can I just ask you a quick question then? I mean, this one isn't necessarily one we need to um, to leave with the podcast, but it's actually from an Israeli perspective. So obviously we, I mean, I'll speak for myself here, you know, um, kind of idealistically left-wing in my political outlook. Um, I do, you know, in many respects believe that football fans in particular can reach out to one another in ways that maybe, you know, nation states can't, politicians can't, diplomats can't, etc. And from an Israeli-Palestine perspective, I interviewed a footballer, professional footballer who plays in the West Bank a few years ago. Um, and it just got me thinking, actually, are you aware of any kind of fan outreach between fans of Israeli clubs and fans of Palestinian clubs as a, as a kind of way of, of bridge building? Um, or is that just complete fantasy that I've that's popped into my head? No, there were endeavors in, 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 in that regard, uh, bringing uh, Israeli kids and Palestinian kids together. Um, again, I, I, I think this, these things are helpful. I mean, I'm not sort of... Uh, You're skeptical on the impact that they can have ultimately, I'm, right? I'm, I'm skeptical because of, of what we discussed before, that, you know, in, when it works well, when you have an Arab player on the Israeli uh, national team, who scores a goal, then you have all this integration talk and what we can achieve when we work together. But the problem is that player who scores a goal can, can miss a penalty kick the next day. And then 
the discourse changes very, very rapidly. So I'm just very skeptical about, very skeptical about attributing to football more than, than it deserves and it can achieve. It's in the end, a leisure activity. Uh, that's, that's, that's been, I think in recent years, uh, given meanings and, 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 and importance that are perhaps in some cases, uh, um, I think excessive. Yeah. No, I mean, look, look there's a, in, in a similar field, there's a, there's a racialized discourse to the England football team. Raheem Cern, for example, plays well for England. He's English. He plays poorly, misses a chance. He's black. That, that's the reality. Exactly. That's, how it, that's how it plays exactly. out in the, in the press, at least in any way. Exactly. Yeah. Because people, football doesn't really change who we are. It's just a way for us to express who we are. Yeah. And that's, I think, something that's important to, to, to remember. I mean, yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's all of our questions done, Yuri. Thank you so much Perfect. for that. That was a Thank fabulous you. discussion. Brilliant. And if our listeners would like to engage with your work further online, how can they do so? I guess they uh, should Google my name and find the, the relevant articles. Of course. Yeah. Or send me an email and I'll send them the relevant articles. Brilliant. Well, we'll put your contact details in our episode details so that they can do that. That's all from us at Football and Society. We'll be back with you soon.